As Josh already stated, we're in a uh, series both in Fayetteville and in Bentonville. You guys are the same series on, uh, I guess, a book called Good Faith that I've read and uh, probably a few of you have read. And we don't have any copies available yet, but I understand they'll be here next week. I would encourage you to get them and read the book. It's a great book by two guys, David Kinneman of the Barnes Group and Gabe Lines of Q. And uh, copies will be available next week in the foyer. And at the risk of being redundant, I don't know what Sean said last week about the book, but I want to just remind you kind of the theme of the book. And each week as you hear these talks, keep them in context of these thoughts. Uh, The theme of the book is that Christians should lead relationally. In all of our relationships, we should lead with love. And last week's talk was on worldview. So regardless, when you're interacting at work or at play or at wherever you're interacting with someone who has a different worldview than yours, even if it's really different than yours, they have a different value system than yours, you should still lead relationally with love. And so this morning, the topic is race. And so you can apply that same thought to the topic this morning. And every week's topic Think about these themes. So that's the first thought from the book. The second thought from the book is that we ought to have in the core of our being something I would refer to, a big, uh, I guess, religious word, an orthodox Christian faith. And I know there's differences of opinion about all kinds of things, about sovereignty and free will and about end times views and, and, and how we take communion and a lot tons of, throughout the last 2,000 years of church history. But there's an, also an orthodoxy. There are beliefs that Christians have generally held throughout the last 2,000 years. And as the culture in Western civilization starts to erode and move away from a Judeo-Christian foundation, you better know what this book teaches because that's where those beliefs come from. And so the second theme of the book is that we ought to have in the core of our being some core beliefs that regardless of how, quote, Christianity starts to shift as the culture shifts, We cling to those core beliefs as Orthodox Christians like the ones that have come before us the last 2,000 years. That's the second thing the book teaches. The third thing is we ought to live out our faith, those core beliefs in the culture, in tangible ways so that people can see we're Christians, as Jesus said, by the way we live and by the way we love. And, And another way of describing the theme of the book is we're supposed to have a firm center, but soft edges in the way we relate to people culturally, regardless if they don't agree with us politically on Facebook, okay? We're, uh, let me just throw out this. It's not a worldview talk, but one of the questions before you write something, type something in and send it out to the whole world ought to be, what would Jesus tweet, okay? <laughs> just throwing that out as a random thought. It has nothing to do with the talk this morning. Uh, Kinnaman and Lyons call it love, believe, and live. Love, believe, and live. Again, today's topic is race. Let me go there. We all seem to have a tendency, initially at least, before we get to know someone personally and individually, to gravitate relationally toward people who have the most in common with us. That's normal. Including, and usually I would say first and foremost race, but that's not intellectually completely true. If we were in a room of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation this morning, we would not gravitate toward a person based on race. We'd gravitate toward a person based on language. That would be the first thing. But the second thing would probably be race. It takes proactivity, and we need to acknowledge this, to relationally engage people who are quite different than we are, um, not just in the area of race, but in all kinds of areas. We also have a tendency to unconsciously assume other people share similar views and life experiences with us, and that often leads to erroneous, just wrong conclusion when we're trying to read a room about what's happening in the room. Like, for example, if I don't feel uncomfortable or alienated in a certain situation, no one else should either. Something else that we all have to overmanage is our tendency to stereotype. In regards to race, it means to draw conclusions about people before we knew, even know them based on inferences and conclusions that we've drawn from maybe some limited past experiences 
are things we've heard from other people about people from that race or that culture. And I'm going to start using another word because it's actually a more biblical word. And you know what? It happens to be cool right now to say this word. It's called clan. And, uh, and so I'm going to say that a lot. So I'm just talking about that because race is technically not an accurate word. I'll get to that in a minute biblically. But, and I'll interchange race and clan and, and back and forth. But people of different clans. Maybe we've drawn conclusions or we stereotype based on media input about individuals, people from different groups of, uh, or clans. Now, that's a difficult tendency to overcome because it's based on our brain attempting to pattern limited information. We all do it, but that doesn't make it right. It's not fair, for example, I'll pick on a particular town that those that have been around for a while, it's easy to pick on them. And if you're from Harrison, Arkansas, you can come up and chew me out after this is over. Uh, it, it, that everybody from, say, rural white southern men, if they really had their brothers and their wife would let them, would drive pickup trucks. And they tend to be prejudiced, particularly if you're from Harrison, maybe for, against African Americans. And then ascribe those tendencies to anyone we meet that's a white male from Harrison, Arkansas. It's just not fair. It's not right. And it's just wrong-headed. It's also not fair to assume that all young black males from large inner cities are violent and dangerous. And by the way, let's don't discount the devil and his demons in every aspect of our life, including this area too. We can't use that as an excuse, but we can use it to be aware that we don't need to participate with the ruler of hell when we make decisions about race or anything else. According to the Bible, we are really all one race, the race of Adam and Eve. And after that mass flood and that redo thing back there you did with Noah, we're all now descendants of Noah. We were created in God's image. Genesis 1.27 says that. And I know that we've come a long way since the Garden of Eden, and all of us... <laughs> Race has nothing to do with this, are tarnished image bearers. But we are all reflect, maybe dimly, the image of God. We're image bearers. That's why we were created. Genesis 1.27. We're created to be bearers of the image of God. And we're also created to be stewards or caretakers of creation. We're more aware of that. According to God's commission to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1.28. You know, God basically said the same thing when he did the redo with Noah. Coming out of the boat, he tells Noah basically the same thing. Repopulate the earth. Be fruitful and multiply. Take, try to take, in a sense, dominion over the earth in a healthy way. And God was looking for a planet of worshipers that were very diverse in the way they looked and uh, the way they interacted culturally. Luke tells us, and if you don't know what I'm doing right now, I'm building a case Starting in Genesis, I'm going to just do this briefly through Scripture, that God clearly has a passion for people from every tribe, tongue, language, or clan, if you will. I know it's a duh, but I need to do it. Acts 10, 34 and 35. Peter, remember he was part of the, quote, chosen race, so he naturally contended to justify his racism. But when God did another redo that didn't necessarily involve judgment other than the judgment his son received on the cross, he really opened it back up and took it away from Judaism to all the Gentiles. And Peter was struggling with it, so he gave Peter this powerful dream, and he gave another Roman centurion a powerful dream. And they all came together, and Peter has this aha moment that Luke records in Acts 10, 34, and 35, and he says that he knows now that God does not show racial favoritism, but accepts people from every tribe and tongue and nation or every clan who fear him and seek him and seek to do what's right. Paul, moving forward, church age, in one of his missionary journeys. Now, think about Paul. He's a Jew. Educated by the leading Jew of his day, a guy by the name of Gamaliel. He's highly intelligent, probably speaks five languages fluently. Comes from a wealthy family. He also happens to be cross-cultural by nature because he's a Roman citizen. And he plays that card whenever he needs to, to get out of trouble. And he's speaking cross-culturally to a bunch of intellectual Greeks at the Oropagus. 
And he says this in Acts 17, 26 through 28 with respect to, well, let me just read it. This is Paul, Acts 17, 26 through 28. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. It's his universe, Paul's saying. And he doesn't live in temples built by hands, either a Greek temple or a Jewish temple or a Roman temple. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he gives. I'm reading verse 24. It's not on the screen. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he gives all men life and breath and everything else. And then he starts, and this is on the screen, from one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. and be. He determined the time set for them, the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him, perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets, Greek poets, have said, they're philosophers, we are his offspring. So, keeping on talking about what the Bible says, Jesus. Let's go back to Jesus. John 3.16, we all know it, it's a duh. What does John 3.16 say? It says, God loved the world so much, he loved the people of the world, all the people of the world so much, that he sent his one and only son, that according to ancient laws, as C.S. Lewis says, written before the dawn of time by God himself, that required the blood of a perfect sacrifice to atone for all the sins of Adam's race, he sent his son to redeem, to buy us back from the one our ancient ancestor all of our ancient ancestors sold out to in the garden back there, Adam and Eve, to buy us back from his power and the power of death. So that whoever, and by the way, the Greek word for whoever means whoever, whoever believes in Jesus would not perish but have eternal life. That's a universal offer, clearly. I know this is a duh. Paul says the same thing in Galatians 3, 28 and 29. And, uh, you know, it's not a black and white thing with Paul. It's a Jew or Gentile thing with them. And he says this in Galatians 3, verses 28 and 20. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. He's not embracing slavery. The Bible doesn't condone slavery. He's just acknowledging a cultural truth of his day and time. Regardless if you're a free man or a slave, a Jew or a Greek, a man or a woman, male or female, we're all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ... You're Abraham's seed. Now he's going back to the race thing, and he's acknowledging that God at one point in time, I'll get into this in just a few minutes, did choose one race of people, work through one man to make the promise universal. And he said, all of us now have inherited when we receive Christ and embrace him by faith, we inherit the promises made to that one man, the hope of heaven, eternal life with God. Reconciled to God. All those promises, we're heirs of those promises when we receive Christ, regardless of our race or our gender. So those are just a few of scores of passages that talk about, that talk about uh, God-loving people from every clan, every tribe, and every nation. Uh, let me just go on and talk about the Jews now in genocide. So why did God choose the Jews over other ethnic groups or clans? And what about the destruction of whole clans ordered by God himself in the Old Testament? Let me just confess something right off the bat. I struggle with a lot of things that I don't fully understand about God and about the Bible. I don't, I don't understand everything. God has never given me a course in universe, and if he did, I'm not sure my IQ is big enough, pretty sure it isn't, to understand it all. And this is an area that I don't fully understand why God did genocide back there in the Old Testament. But the Bible sheds some light on it, and we need to hear that. But first, why did he choose the Jews? Well, he makes that pretty clear. He wanted to bring forth, they weren't any better than the rest of us. My gosh, look at what they did. I mean, the first guy he picks twice, tries to pawn his wife off for sexual relations with a king to save his hide. He's not exactly who I would choose uh, if he's going to do things like that. God chose a group of people for Reasons only to him. He is the ruler of the universe. He has the right to make his choices. And, and, and he chose this guy named Abraham. And he tells him from the very beginning, I'm choosing you so that someday I will bring forth from you a redeemer who will buy back through his death, as I've already stated, all of humanity that will embrace him by faith. So that's the reason he chose him, to ultimately bring forth the son from him. 
The book of Jonah, as well as many other Old Testament passages, make it clear that God cares deeply for people that were not just Jews in that day and time. In fact, there's an interesting passage of Scripture in Isaiah 49.6, and the, the Jews did a crummy job with doing this. He wanted the Jews to participate in making his love known to the world. He did it through the temple, through all kinds of other things. They didn't do a good job of participating with him. But there's a passage of Scripture. A lot of this stuff is in Isaiah. And God's speaking through the prophet Isaiah prophetically about seven centuries before Jesus will be born to a teenage virgin in Palestine. He says this, God speaking to his son, the second person of the divine trinity that Zach talked about earlier. It's too small a thing for you to be my servant to just restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel that I have kept. I want to make you alike to the Gentiles. By the way, this Gentile thing, uh, none of us need to get too heady about our ethnic background unless you happen to be a few Jews in here, okay? Uh, Those of you that are white in the room, most of us came from those northern barbarian tribes that invaded the Roman Empire. I just thought I'd point that out. I will bring, make you a light to the Gentiles. That's all of us, unless you're of Jewish descent. That you may bring, speaking to Jesus, his son, the Messiah, my salvation. Where? What's his heart for? To the ends of the earth. That's the Bible again. So what about genocide? Well, there's a hint given in one verse that I want to share with you this morning. It's Genesis 15, 16. Interestingly enough, right after he calls this worshiper of the moon gods from a place called Ur of the Chaldees, the guy by the name of Abraham, and Abraham obeys him and starts following him. Right after he calls him, he takes him to the promised land, and he gives him a glimpse of it. And then he says to him that, oh, by the way, you can't live here. You can live here for a while. You wander around in a tent. I'm, I'm going to bless your socks off. You'll have a lot of, uh, they didn't have cows back then, camels and, and all that other stuff, and, and goats and sheep. And I'm going to make you wealthy, but you can't stay here. And he tells him why, and it's a strange reason why. In fact, think about it. It's going to be centuries before Abraham's descendants will be allowed to possess the promised land with a guy by the name of Joshua. And what's going to happen in the meantime? (laughs) We're going to talk about slavery in a few minutes. His descendants are going to become slaves in Egypt. And God knows all that, and he allows it to happen. He says, yeah, it'll be a few hundred years before this promise is going to be fulfilled. He doesn't fill in all the blanks for him. And he says, the reason is there's a group of people living in the promised land right now, and their iniquity, their depravity, their cultural, moral mudslide is not yet complete. In other words, they haven't reached the point of no return. At some point, I will say enough, and they won't be redeemable as a culture. And I will basically, through a guy by the name of Joshua, wipe most of them out. One of the group of people is called the Amorites. We're going to see who the Amorites descended from in just a few minutes and talk about that in relation to another thing. But right now I'm going to go on with the story. So when God does things like a global flood, that is Genesis, genocide too, <laughs> of the whole earth, in Genesis 7, or when he destroys Sodom in Genesis 19... Because of several reasons he describes, first and foremost was not sexual immorality or sexual perversion. First and foremost was their treatment of the poor. Secondly, because they were idol worshipers. And thirdly, because they were sexually immoral and depraved. When God does a wipeout of Sodom or a wipeout of the whole earth, he's waited to the point of no return for that culture. All right, now, that's great to talk about Old Testament stuff and and, and all that, but I want to talk about something real specific that's closer to where we live today. I want to talk about European racism and American racism by people of European descent against people of African descent specifically. There are two completely different origins for this historically well-documented racism other than just the general principles of people having bias based on similarities and differences. I want to talk about first the roots of European and American slavery of Africans. And by the way, the Bible has a verse that applies across the board. It's a great one to remember. You may have heard it quoted, quoted secularly a lot even. It goes like this, Jim, if you or your culture 
or your church or your people or your nation or any group of people sows to the wind, in other words, totally disregards <laughs> the ethos of heaven and the way you make your laws, the way you make your court decisions, and the way you live personally, that's called sowing to the wind. He said, eventually you'll reap the whirlwind. And we did as an American culture on this very issue. Do you know? You may not know this. They thought the American casualties, black and white, in the Civil War, for years they thought there were around 620,000 based on some documentation. Now they've realized in the last few decades they're more like three-quarters of a million to eight or 900,000 Americans. That was a lot back then, lost their lives during the Civil War. Do you know that that's more than all the American casualties in the First World War, the Second World War, the Korean War, and the Vietnam War, and every war fought by our Americans combined total more in the Civil War? When you sow to the wind and disregard the ethos of heaven, you'll reap the whirlwind. Just throwing that out there. Well, the so-called white Christian justification for African slavery. I want to talk about that first. It was a focus. Some of you may have heard this. Probably most of you have not. It was a focus primarily on one passage of Scripture only. It's Genesis 9, 18 through 27. And I'm going to tell you that Bible story. It's a little weird if you hadn't heard it before. But European and American Christians use this one strange story almost exclusively to justify the African slave trade, ignoring the totality of Scripture and a few of those verses that I just read you, clearly indicating God's heart for the people of every tribe, tongue, and nation. And it's the story of Noah getting drunk. It goes like this. It's the story of a drunk old man cursing his grandson. This is what they used to justify African slavery. And you're going to think, that's strange. It's true. Noah gets drunk. He plants a vineyard when he comes out of the boat. He, you know, he gets some grapes. I don't know why he got drunk, but he got drunk. And he ends up naked, drunk in his tent. And, and I guess it's, it's always socially taboo to, yeah, I guess, go in and see your father naked and drunk. But it was really socially taboo in that day and time. And one of his sons, he has three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And, and if you know the table of the nations, the next chapter of the the Arabs and the Jews come out of the guy named Shem, and most of us, those northern barbarian European tribes, come out of that guy named Japheth. And if you're of African descent or certain other types of descent, you came out of the guy named Ham. Well, Ham goes in, sees his father naked, comes out and makes fun of him to his two other brothers. Noah gets mad, and he curses one of Ham's four sons. He doesn't curse Ham, kind of a get back at you. You saw me, so I'm going to curse your son. He curses a son who probably was already starting to act out at the time and was a mess. He's got, this guy's name is Canaan. He has three other sons, Cush, Mizraim, and Put, but he curses Canaan. Now, if you know the rest of the story in the Bible, the Canaanites were the ones that were in the land, follow me on this, when Joshua comes into the land later, and they're part of the ones that mostly, not completely, get wiped out. All those ites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the whatever, the Jebusites, those were all descendants of Canaan, or most of them were. And they were in the land, and they end up kind of getting wiped out, and some of them end up as slaves to some of the and, and, and so the curse kind of comes true in a way. But was it a curse on Ham or three of his four sons? No. In fact, it was only on one child, Canaan, and it came true. And Canaan was not the father of the African races. Two of the other boys, Put and Cush, definitely were, and maybe the third one. So it was misplaced interpretation of Scripture to start with. One isolated passage, which if you take it the way you're trying to justify, it goes against the totality of Scripture used by people. Why am I telling you this? Well... It became the sole justification. More stories about that in just a few minutes. African slaves became the backbone of the southern U.S. economy in the early 1800s. And today, 152 years after the Civil War, you can hear these same scriptural arguments used by white supremacists and a few others in our culture. Abolitionists. Those that during the 17 and 1800s worked hard in Europe, particularly England, and the United States to abolish slavery were men and women, and I'll give you just a few of them. I'll give you five of them. Their pictures will appear on the screen. The first one is a guy you may be familiar with if you've read and seen the movies and the plays, Amazing Grace. 
He worked in England primarily to abolish slavery. His name was William Wilberforce. Another one was Frederick Douglass. Another one was William Lloyd Garrison. Their pictures are coming on the screen. Another one was a gal by the name, I love this name, Sojourner Truth, a former African slave. Harriet Beecher Stowe, a famous author. And I looked up in preparation for this talk, which I've already given in Fayetteville, did a lot of research and looked up a lot of the stories of these abolitionists. 100% of the ones I read about all based the motivation for abolishing slavery on biblical values and truths. So the idea that agnostics or atheists or people that were not of faith abolished slavery, it's just not true at all. It's baloney. And it was people that had a strong passion that God shared that did away with slavery. And I know that some of you that really know your history, you're going to say, wait a minute, William Lloyd Garrison ended up being a secular humanist and an agnostic. That's true. But at the time he started the abolitionist movement, he was basing, he was a preacher, and he based it on Christian values and on biblical principles and truths. I wanted to point that out. Now, I want to pause in our discussion, the underpinnings of white racism, and I'll give you the non-Christian underpinnings. Let me just go ahead and do that right now before I share more on this curse on Canaan thing. The primary non-Christian philosophical underpinnings used to justify European and American racism of African de- against people of African descent in the late 1800s after the um, Civil War and the early 1900s after slavery was abolished was the same philosophical underpinnings the Germans used to justify the Holocaust and the killing of 6 million Jews. It was a popular philosophy that came out right after Darwin's theory of evolution. It was called eugenics. It's, by the way, the same philosophy that Margaret Sanger used when she started Planned Parenthood. More on that if you want to talk to me after the service. It's called social Darwinism. Simply applying Darwin's evolutionary principles to society and seek to, to kill, wipe out, or marginalize people that one group considered inferior. A lot of the Nazis and the Germans versus the Jews. Which, of course, it was always people different than the, quote, race that would seek to impose their will on the other race. Now, back to the white Christian justification for slavery, the so-called curse on Ham, the argument used to justify white racism against blacks in America. I want to share you a story that's very personal that had an impact on a close friend of mine's life. For years, it's my wife, and tried to get her to share it, but she wouldn't do it, so I'm going to tell the story for her. She'll share it in a small group, but she doesn't like Stanford and speak in front of this many people. 1969, North Little Rock, Arkansas, that's where we live. She and I were dating, and uh, this is really difficult to get most of you in this room. I'm looking at the ages of the people I'm talking to, and you're going to think, that is, that's crazy. You didn't live in the South in the 1960s. That's all I can say. And, and this was so, there wasn't, in, in North Little Rock, Arkansas, I don't believe there was a single church in the city in 1969 that was integrated in any way. Not one. I don't believe it. And, and the government, beginning about 10 years earlier, was trying to desegregate the culture and society, and they started with the schools. And across the river in Little Rock, they became very famous for what happened there. Most of you have heard that story. But in North Little Rock, it wasn't going so bad. But still, there was a lot of tension, racial tension, and there were still struggles. And, and I was a young social activist, to say the least. And, and as a senior in high school, uh, I'd started a, a, a service club that would become very popular, and we had a lot of people in it, and it was mixed gender and mixed race. And in 1969, in North Little Rock High School, that was unheard of. And Pam happened to be dating this young social activist, so she came to some naive conclusions, you know, like I talked about earlier, that a lot of people thought like she did or I did, which wasn't the case. And she assumed that this Baptist church she went to, that they shared these values that I've shared with you that are clear from the Bible, which wasn't the case. They had an all-white school, and they were racist. And how she missed that, I don't know. But she made the mistake of, letting some of her family and friends know at the church that she intended to invite. She was a captain of the cheerleading squad, her co-captain, which happened to be her friend who was black, her friend at school at least, and she was wanting more out of the relationship. She was going to do what any of us would do, 
back in the South, you'd invite your friends in the 60s to quote a revival at your church. Well, the pastor and the leadership of the church got wind of it, that this little 16-year-old kid was going to invite a black 16-year-old kid who was her friend to their church. And they called her in. And they used that exact same passage of Scripture I just read to you. And they misinterpreted it. They misapplied it the way Southerners had been doing for a century or more. And she said unkind things to them. <laughs> and they kicked her out of the church. They exercised church discipline. I'm serious. They kicked a 16-year-old kid out of their church because she wanted to bring a black person to church. Said that they were cursed and went into this whole ham thing. And the impact it had on her life was for the next five years of her life, she didn't go to church. She rejected God. Because if God were supposed to be living icons of Jesus in the culture, and if God looked like you, then I don't want any part of him. <laughs> she made bad choices. And I'm not blaming all, I'm confessing for my wife up here this morning. I'm not blaming all my wife's <laughs> behavior in college and so on on two old men in a church, but it has something to do with it. What we believe and the way we live out our faith and our culture is important. It's important, folks. All right, enough of that. Let's go to the U.S. Civil Rights Movement in the 1960s. It was led primarily by a black Baptist preacher from Atlanta named Martin Luther King, Jr. He did more to address American white and black racism and to obtain political, educational, economic, and cultural opportunities for African Americans than anything done since the abolition of slavery by the passage of the 13th Amendment in 1865. No doubt about it. One of my, one of, he has a, he's a quote machine. I mean, you can pull all kinds of great quotes out by Martin Luther King. I pull one out that's a little obscure. And I, I think it's more important for us to hear this one today and think about it. It's from his letter from a Birmingham jail. Here's what he felt like, as he said in that jail, for civil disobedience. He said, shallow understanding. This is a kind, generous way of saying something. From people of goodwill. He said, it's more frustrating to him as a person than absolute misunderstanding, and I would add mistreatment, from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance, he said, is much more bewildering than outright rejection. So what about us today? Let me quote somebody else. Some of you may not like this guy. Some of you love him. I certainly like some of the things he says. His name's John Piper. And I want to share with you a couple of Piper quotes that I think are on point. Piper says this, We're constantly in danger of feeling that God is partial to our tribe. That he has a special liking to our ethnicity and our cultural norms. That's just stupid. Jesus was a Mid-Eastern first century Jew. It's, it's crazy when you think about what we do. Another quote by Piper. Ethnic diversity is not connected to God marginally. It's connected at his very center, his core. His single glorious way that he justifies all sinners who come to him by faith. Now, some random thoughts from the authors of good faith. This doesn't appear on the screen. I just put together some things from the book. Most, if not all of us, struggle with implicit racial bias. The unconscious attitudes or stereotypes related to race that affect our perceptions, our actions, and our decisions. We need to become aware of our biases. Trying to be colorblind or saying you're colorblind, it's silly. It's impossible. It just won't happen. And it doesn't make space for us to appreciate different social narratives and cultural expressions. The solution is to build relationships. This is, by the way, you're going to hear this three or four times. Cortez will share it with you. I'll share it with you again. The application for the day is this. Personally, build relationships that cross ethnic and racial divides. That's difficult. Let's acknowledge it. For most of us, our everyday interaction with people like us. Cortez, come on up here. This is my friend Cortez. He was born and raised in Memphis, Tennessee. He attended Mississippi State University. He was a bulldog where he played defensive line for them. 
Cortez is married to his beautiful wife, Alexandria, who came in snucky, and she wasn't supposed to show up. They've got two young children. One of them was up all night. But she's still wrestling with them, I think, because she had to step out. And by the way, she's the speaker at you gals women's retreat coming up, and she is an incredible speaker. She's a whole lot better than Cortez. Our main, no offense, Cortez. And... Uh, <laughs> She actually helped him, I think, write some of these questions that are so good that I'm going to ask him here in a few minutes. But, so I'm plug in for her and for the women's retreat. And she played basketball, too, for the Bulldogs. He's, they have two children, Micah and Nehemiah. Cortez is currently on staff with Crew at the university where he leads a contextualized ministry called Impact Crew. If you don't know the language, is the Campus Crusade for Christ. He targets students... Uh, of African descent that includes international students from Africa as well as African Americans. He's passionate about his family and seeing students experience the power of the gospel in every area of life. And I'm going to ask him some questions that he wrote for me to ask him that will help bring out some more truth of what we've been talking about this morning. First, Cortez, fill in what I left out about your upbringing and how you came to faith in Jesus. This is my beautiful wife. Yeah. <laughs> We talked about you while I was gone, but we said good things. No, so thanks, Jim. Um, so a little about myself. Again, uh, as Jim alluded to, I grew up in the inner city of Memphis. I would say that I had three goals growing up. I wanted to make a lot of money. I wanted to have a lot of women, and I wanted to be famous by any means necessary. And so I was well on my way through the vehicle of sports. Um, I saw guys like Anthony Hardaway uh, obtain success through being a great athlete. I saw drug dealers in my community do pretty well because they obtained money. So people in our community wanted to be near them. Uh, they had women. And so anyway, I, as I look back, I reflect. I'm like, man, I had really low goals, but at the time I thought they were really high. And so as I pushed and was motivated through sports and I thought that was my way to get out of my community, to provide for my family, I immersed myself in sports. It became an idol. So I hoped and put my everything into it. And so um, I ended up uh, obtaining a scholarship to go to University of Memphis to play football. I thought I'd be a hometown star. I'm like, man, my mom can come to my games. Well, I get the scholarship after only playing one year of high school football, but I got kicked off the team my freshman year because I didn't abide to the, um, the team rules. So basically the coach would punish the entire team if one guy um, missed study hall or missed workouts, was late to class, the entire team would get punished. It was like, hey, we're all in this together. I didn't realize how self-righteous I was and how much pride I had in my heart. I grew up pretty, I don't know, I was like a Pharisee. I thought, thought because, you know, I got my act together. I do the right things. And so, anyway, in Memphis, my heart was revealed, got kicked off the team. My parents were disappointed. Uh, I experienced God's grace for the first time in that uh, my dad wanted me to go to Mississippi State out of high school because they had the first African-American coach in the SEC in Sylvester Croom. And um, I told Coach Croom what happened at the University of Memphis because of my actions. I got kicked off the team. He said, we wanted you in high school. We still want you now. And I was like, what, really? And so they put me on full scholarship, even though I had to sit out a year. So I get to Mississippi State thinking, like, man, I'm about to change my ways, behavior modification. I'm going to be a good person, submit to authority. Well, obviously, I can't change my heart. Like, I, I didn't do that. And so I was on my way of getting kicked off the team again at Mississippi State because I just wanted my own way. I wanted my own comfort. I, I thought things should revolve around me. And uh, I met a guy named Braxton Stowe, an African-American guy from Alabama, and we began having conversations. Uh, Braxton was saved the year pre before. Uh, he became a believer the year before. And uh, we talked about how sports and music brought all types of people groups together, but the name of Jesus Christ seems to still be segregated. And uh, <clears throat> he invited me to go to Fellowship Christian Athletes. That's where I met my wife. And uh, it was like night and day in the locker room. We would talk about planning a scheme for evil things. And then I went to Fellowship Christian Athletes, and people would challenge me, ask me questions like, man, what has the Lord been teaching you? What are you praying about? And I was like, oh, this is kind of personal. I don't know. I, I wouldn't have believed her. But I began to be, you know, go around uh, other Christian believers. And then Braxton, he invited me to Crew, Campus Crusade for Christ, as a joke because he wanted to um, crew at Mississippi State, target white fraternities and sororities. And he said, man, let's go to Crew to mix it up. And I said, all right, come on, let's do it. Uh, <laughs> So I grew up in the inner city of Memphis where it was literally all black. We didn't have any white people. In my, and then my dad moved to South Haven, Mississippi, where I jokingly say the Lord was preparing me for Northwest Arkansas. I was the only black dude in my class. And so I, uh, <clears throat> we went to Crew Campus Crusade weekly meeting on a Tuesday night. 
And uh, it was the first time I really heard the gospel in a, in a way I'm like, oh, my goodness. They, it was expository teaching line by line, verse by verse. And I went as a joke thinking, uh, man, I'm going to mix this thing up. Let's diversify. And the Lord mixed me up. I placed my faith in Jesus through being in community. And um, just Jim Davis is the guy. He's a pastor in Oxford, Mississippi now. Um, he just laid out the gospel, and he was bold. And so anyway, my life hadn't been the same since. Great story. What are some of the misconceptions you feel white people have about the black community and what would you like them to know? I'm so glad my wife is here. So we can be like, man, we two black people from Memphis. And we couldn't be this. We, we, we're so different. Um, I think uh, oftentimes I hear from a lot of my uh, white brothers and sisters, uh, they think all black people are the same. Some of you are like, no, I don't. But we really do. Uh, for example, I think a lot of people think all black people love fried chicken and watermelon. That's just not true. <laughs> My wife doesn't like soul food, um, which I, is unfortunate. Something wrong with that. I don't yeah. know. Pray, like, look, can we lay hands on her real quick? No, but I, uh, <clears throat> it's just uh, we can't dance. Everybody expected us out oh, waiting. They thought we were from goodness. Memphis. They thought oh, we were going to like, oh, I know for sure they can dance like I saw in the video. It's just not true. And I think <laughs> what oftentimes shapes that is social media, just what we see in movies. For example, um, the best part of waking up, it's Folgers in your cup. Did any of y'all ever try to remember that? No. But it's something that y'all heard enough, but it just kind of became a part of your psyche. It's the same thing, I think, when we listen to music and watch different movies, like we seeing only slaves or uh, only athletes or um, thugs or whatever it may be. If that becomes our psyche or our perception, we, we, we tend to group all black people, just one group of people. So... Anyway, I think that's a huge misconception we may have. Just some of the, um, we have to be super intentional with meeting individuals and hearing their narratives and getting to know them on a personal level. Good answer. What about the difference between color blindness and true racial reconciliation, and what's the way forward in this? There is no such thing as color blindness. I mean, it's just, we, we all see color, if we were to be honest. Matter of fact, on y'all way here, did y'all stop at a traffic light? Did y'all notice it's green, you proceed, red, you stop, yellow, proceed with caution. And so we all see color, if we were to be honest. And I'm thankful that our God theology teaches us in Revelation, John saw, John saw, John saw every tongue, tribe, and nation. And so God is something that we can embrace. I know it's a polite thing to tell people. It's like, oh, I don't see color. I don't see that. It's, I just see everybody the same. No, no, we don't. If we were to be honest, we see color. And we're not all the same. We are uniquely made by God, and I think that's something that we should embrace. And so true reconciliation looks like a person being submitted to God, loving God with all our heart, soul, strength, all of our being. Because of faith in Jesus, we have right relationship with God vertically, and then we're able to love neighbors thyself. And so it's this horizontal relationship. So it forms a cross. As we think about the gospel, like God loved us first by sending Jesus, and now we can begin to love others because we've received love. So true reconciliation is uh, once we can have truth, we can truly reconcile to one another because we know God's truth and his love for us. All right. How can we make predominantly white churches safe and welcoming to minorities? We all praying about that. Let's just continue to pray. No, <laughs> I, think, no I, um, I think three things I think of um, relationships, um, leadership, and culture. I think uh, it's, it's, it's hard. Uh, I mean, diversity is hard. I mean, marriage is hard. I mean, you just have two different people, these unspoken rules. It's just very hard. But I think three ways that predominantly white churches can diversify their church and make it more welcoming and safe for minorities. One, relationships. So <clears throat> if we think our churches are going to be diverse on, start, on Sundays, I think we're mistaken and fooling ourselves. What do your relationships look like Monday through Saturday? Are we being intentional where our kids, like, going to places we typically may not shop? Maybe you love Whole Foods. We love Whole Foods. But, like, what, what does it look like to go on the other side of the town to shop there, to be missional, to be intentional with bridging relationships throughout the week, inviting people who don't vote like you, don't dress like you, who don't think like you, who may not have the same theology to your dinner table, letting your kids interact and being intentional with relationships. The second thing is leadership. Everything communicates up from up front, like who you have speaking, who do you have singing, who do you have leading groups. I think even if your church is not super diverse, like how do we uh, create space where we, we welcome and invite leaders or be training leaders to lead so that um, we can say, like, man, God created all of us, uh, not just like it's just one type of just one type of leadership. So I think being intentional with leadership and so to diversify that, and I think it makes it more welcoming for people to see people 
uh, that look like them. For one example, I don't know if y'all seen the movie Hidden Figures. If y'all haven't, I encourage you to go see it. But I had no idea. Here I am, a 30-year-old man, pursuing, like almost finished my master's degree, and I had never heard of that story. Representation is so important. I think we're fooling ourselves. We think, oh, it doesn't matter. Leadership matters. Seeing people up front, seeing the contribution, contributions people have is important. It's vital. Lastly, culture. Every family, every pair church, every um, church organization has culture. So how can we think of ways to create a culture that's welcoming to people? Uh, again, if you only have a few minorities, take if you have a few Asian, a few African-American, a few international students, how can you get with, them, get with them on a monthly basis or quarterly to talk about, like, hey, what are some intentional ways that we can create a culture for your friends, your family, uh, your teammate, whatever it may be, can feel welcome here. So I think starting with the people that's already in your flock, loving them well, instead of looking too far ahead and, and asking for their leadership and asking for ways that you can be more welcoming. All right, let's get controversial. How does it make you feel when people say or send out on an email or anything else, all lives matter, hashtag all lives matter, in response to hashtag black lives matter, and how should the church respond to this whole movement of Black Lives Matter? Yeah, if you're on social media at all, you've seen it at some point. All lives matter. No, you know, black lives matter. No, blue lives matter. Of course, all lives matter. I mean, God made us in the image of himself. And so, yes, all lives matter. But when I hear that statement, all lives matter to black lives matter, it, it really uh, makes me feel like, man, it's, it's really dismissive. It's very insensitive. For example, let me change the analogy a little bit. So if we were all in here, uh, a part of this breast cancer, uh, breast cancer awareness program, we all had pink T-shirts, we were here for this specific event, and it was like, man, let's bring awareness to breast cancer. This affected me in some way. I've had a family member. And then someone comes in here and say, hey, what are y'all doing? All cancer matters. We would look at that person like, dude, like, no, have you lost your mind? Like, no, like we we're focused on a specific thing because, one, that's very insensitive and I think you're missing a point. We're talking about a specific thing. And I think the same thing when oftentimes minorities feel when people say all lives matter to black lives matter. You don't have to agree with the whole agenda or whole program, but I think that we can acknowledge that historically black lives haven't mattered very much in America. I mean, you think of slavery, Jim Crow, new Jim Crow, mass incarceration. You think about all these things. I think the church is simply responding saying, yes, affirm that black lives do matter. We can be uh, for life. And uh, even though we don't agree with everything that's going on, so I would highly, highly encourage us to um, to really think about like um, think about safe ways to encourage life and encourage minorities, especially when people have been oppressed for such a long time. So, what are some things? Again, this is kind of a nuance to the earlier question that this church could specifically do to pursue recon- racial reconciliation in this community. Uh, in this community. So I, I think, um, one, like sometimes in Northwest Arkansas, you look up the demographics, it's not super diverse. It's really, really white. Um, and it's not necessarily a bad thing, but I, I always ask the question, like, why? Like, you, you always should start with why. Like, why Like why is it this way? Or uh, learning the history of it. So I, I would start with, like, man, how do we be intentional with, with praying? Like, we must pray for God's grace, for God's mercy, for God's direction, because that is the work. We need God's hard for these matters. I mean, as we talk about diversity and race issues, it's, it's complicated. It's complex. So I can say one thing and then somebody can kind of act with things like, oh, man, both of those kind of got some truism to it. And so we need God's grace and like, how do we be able to disagree and then walk in unity? So prayer, I think leading with prayer, direction for leadership, direction for the congregation, because the church is, the church is for the saints, to equip the saints to do the work. So it's the body that's got to go out and do it. So prayer, um, also I think about, um, how can we be intentional with uh, submitting to African-American leadership? So something I found is like it's so easy to talk about race when it's Martin Luther King's Day or Black History Month. But how can we not react to Black Lives Matter, react to a shooting that happened, but how can we be proactive throughout the year with building relationships? For example, if I needed help with finances, I would probably go to this guy locally uh, named Chris Haas, uh, Freedom 5-1 Ministries, to get help because I need help in that area. I would encourage this church that's predominantly white to do the same thing in the area of like, man, if there's some, there some local black churches in this area that, that has, have a grip on reaching minorities, reaching all types of people. So what would it look like to submit to minority leadership to learn from them? 
because like, man, we don't have a grasp on this issue. And I think it'll be, it, you must start with humility because it's, it's hard to be like, man, I, I don't know what I'm doing in this area. But I would encourage it to be a proactive thing you do throughout the year, not just on holidays. Cortez, if we pull up that slide about his support base, uh, Cortez, like most Christian parachurch workers, lives off support. If you're interested in supporting his ministry, he and Alex's ministry on the campus, that's what you need to jot down. Sorry, it's not in the bulletin. You can come see here, Alex, after the service, and they can give you more information. And I want to say this, but he, he didn't say it this time or last time, but in talking to him personally, I know that he had an opportunity and was involved with reaching black athletes, and he still does to some degree. And he and his wife were both athletes. That has something to do with the attention that was given to them and how they got reached for Christ, no doubt about it. And certainly black athletes, like white athletes, get a lot of attention, and they get a lot more opportunities than non-athletes. But if you're black on a college campus and you're not an athlete, uh, you don't, you're one of the most unreached groups on the campus. Not very many Christian organizations are targeting you. And so part of what he's doing is trying to move away from just reaching black athletes for Christ, who, who will be leaders probably, but he's trying to reach the students that are African descent that are not athletes, and that's where he's, his ministry is kind of focused on right now. If you're interested in that and guys tweaking you to support them, see them after the service or write that down, and you can head that way. So here's how we're going to close. We're going to break up in groups in just a minute, four or five, and have some prayer time. Pray about anything you want. Pray about what God wants you to do. Confess anything you need to confess. Uh, pray about what the church can do. Speak blessings over Cortez and Alex and their ministry. Whatever you want to pray about, let's just pray for a few minutes. But I want to remind you of the theme again. Encourage you to be proactive personally in relationship building with people that are different from you, different ethnic groups. Uh, avoid stereotyping. And I want to read one more passage of Scripture, again, we've been alluding to, that expresses God's heart from beginning to end. Genesis to Revelation. John, the apostle, the beloved friend of Jesus, a few decades after his death, says he's in the spirit on the Lord's day and has an incredible vision called the book of Revelation. He sees a number of things, but here's one of the things he sees. After this, John says, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, every tribe, every people, and every language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands, and they were crying out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and under the Lamb. That's clearly God's heart. It needs to be our heart. So let's break up in groups. Zach will start the music in just a few minutes, and we'll have a little time of worship as we sing one or two songs. But let's pray right now in small groups.